Every day, countless radio signals float unseen through our airwaves. Many of these originate from the airline industry, the military, police, fire, and rescue. And of course, your favorite radio networks. But then there are other signals. Their source is unknown, they're barely detectable, and their message is dangerous. We give you Rogue Transmissions! Tonight's drama, City on the Edge of Oblivion, written by John Iger and starring Johanna, Tara Voschel, and J.T. Hosack. A special guest, Paige Elmore. Being a superhero isn't all ninja battles and stopping alien invasions. There's quite a lot of paperwork involved as well. My name is Jette Hauser. Chat to my friends. I'm the latest to wear the uniform of Captain Demeter, the defender of home and hearth. It's a quiet afternoon. The hours pass slowly at the Demeter Foundation when there's no field work to be done. We're in an open floor plan office on the top floor of the Foundation's headquarters, high above the roaring tumult of the city. My partner fills out paperwork in the cubicle next to mine. We'd been up all night fighting the Keloid clan and I'm struggling to stay awake, staring at Claudia's furry black and white skunk tail as it undulates in dreamy waves. Then we get the call. This is Hauser. Good morning. This is dispatch at the Abbey. Omega needs you down here to conduct a high-priority interrogation. Right. We're on our way. Come on, Claudia. Let's go to work. Hell yeah. My partner is Claudia Cheever. Codename, Lady Skunk Ape. She's the product of a genetic experiment, which resulted in her having the appearance of a humanoid skunk and the brute strength of a silverback gorilla. Now she works for us. But don't let the name fool you, she's all woman. It's a long drive out to the Abbey. Weren't there any scramblers available? <laughs> As if. General Hardburns has them flying interference against a gang of necropirates? Looks like we're stuck with the Lotus for today. General Hardwick MacArthur Burns, codenamed Hardburns. He's a part-time mercenary, part-time consultant for the Foundation, and a full-time Arschkriecher. On paper, he's our boss. In practice, he makes our lives more miserable six days out of the week. What is this scheisse? Rockabilly. This band is a bunch of guys I went to school with. You don't like it? Can you turn on some news or talk radio? Sure. Hi, my name is Sarai from the Freaky As Fuck podcast, and I'm here today to tell you all about the origins of April Fools. <laughs> This one's pretty good, too. Used to listen to them all the time when we were stationed back in Jakarta. (sighs) Those were simpler times.
It's universally known that once April 1st comes around, it's prank or be pranked. It's a tradition that goes back as far as we can remember, but just how far exactly? Hilaria was an ancient Greco-Roman festival that was held in spring. It began on March 25th and ended on April 1st. It was celebrated by followers of Sybil. Hilaria was a day for fun and games, and goers would dress up in disguises and masquerades and would play pranks and mock other citizens. Although there's no actual proof that the festival and the modern April Fool's Day are connected, it is one of the most common theories. It could also be that April Fool's Day is related to the vernal equinox or the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere, when the weather can be a bit unpredictable. Mother Nature can be quite the trickster also. Another possible but more controversial theory is that Geoffrey Chaucer's 1392's Canterbury Tales holds the earliest recorded association to April the 1st. In the poem The Nun's Priest's Tale, a vain rooster called Chanticleer is tricked by a fox. There's a line in the poem that reads, Since March began, full 32 days and full, which translates to 32 days since March began, which is April the 1st. The reason why it's a bit of a stretch of a theory is because scholars believe that there was actually an error made in the copying of the manuscripts. You had one job. Just the one. In 1582, Pope Gregory XIII modified and replaced the Julian calendar with the Gregorian calendar, which would change the first day of the year from April the 1st to January the 1st. Many people, however, were unaware of this change, and so they continued to celebrate the new year on April the 1st, thus coining the term April Fools. By the 18th century, April Fool's Day had spread all throughout the United Kingdom. Scotland's April Fool's is Hunt the Gawk Day, a gawk being a cuckoo or a foolish person. It's tradition on Gawky Day to send someone on some kind of phony errand. And there's also Taily Day, where it's custom to stick kick-me signs and tails on people's backsides. Because, of course, we always gotta make it about the butts. Since 1972, the citizens of a black seaport town in Ukraine called Odessa have been celebrating April 1st by throwing a festival called Yumorena. The day consists of a large parade and performances from clowns, musicians, and all other types of entertainers. Now, back to our original question, where the heck did April Fool's Day originate from? Well, uh, nobody really knows. But we like it enough to have been doing it for a really long time, so we're just going to keep celebrating it, because it's fun. And it's a pretty well-known fact that we as human beings like to have a good time. So whether you're celebrating spring, or if you're doing it for the hilarity of it all, or if you just happen to be in a silly, goofy mood, happy April, you fool. And remember, don't trust anyone. You can find Freaky as Fuck on all of your major podcast listening platforms and on Twitter and Instagram at FreakyAFPod.
unauthorized persons will be escorted off campus. So what's the play, Captain? Want to start with the soft touch, or should I go work with some pheromones? Just follow my lead. Captain Demeter and Lady Skunkape? <laughs> I must say, they brought out the cream of the crop to visit me. When we're done, maybe you can... Hmm, autograph my sketchbook? You're quite a doodler, Mr. Hutter. You like drawing superheroes? I must say, this sketch of Lady Skunk Ape is quite good. Don't you agree, Claudia? Not bad, I suppose. Though I would say you went a little overboard with drawing the cleavage. <laughs> Omega told me that you were rounded up as part of a sting. Your pathetic middle management position, it turns out, was a small cog in a very large criminal mechanism. A mechanism responsible for half of that which is evil and nearly all that is hidden in the city. Naturally, we want information. Information you might have about the graph, for instance. The graph? What's that? Don't play games, Mr. Hutter. We know that this man I speak of is perhaps the most dangerous enemy assassin operating today. He has the ability to change his face and take on the appearance of others, in order to impersonate high-profile personnel or just to avoid detection. God knows how many killings he's responsible for, including many members of our team. Not just teammates, friends of ours. Guys like Dr. Scorpion, legends. Then you should be truly grateful to him. One can't truly become a legend until one is dead. <laughs> and we believe you know who he is. The Gref, I mean. We believe you've seen him. They say he has a numbered grid tattooed on his face. To help aid him in his transformations, you can only see it under very specific lighting conditions. Surely you'd remember such a man, especially if it would save the lives of American citizens. American citizens? Like you? <laughs> yeah, you're as American as Monday Night Football and Grandma's Apple Pie, aren't you, sweetheart? My father was German, and my mother was part Swiss and part Haitian. We immigrated here from Bremen and became US citizens when I was 15. And now I wear this uniform, the uniform of Captain Demeter. On my shoulders are plates of Pennsylvania steel, engraved with the faces of Mount Rushmore presidents. But they don't just represent great leaders, they represent the dream. And after all that, do you know what percentage American that makes me? 100% American. You see, I can speak all the German I want, eat all the currywurst and Sachertorte I want. I'm still just as American as you are. <laughs> Don't get cute with us, you little skid mark. These claws of mine will mince you into a wet lump of quivering meatloaf anytime you're ready for it. You know why they call my partner Lady Skunk Ape? Because she stinks. Not in the offensive way that a skunk stinks. Quite the contrary. She stinks of highly concentrated pheromones. She's trained her body to use them to obtain many extraordinary effects. Claudia doesn't like speaking of this ability often. She says that using it feels dirty. Like she's pissing through her skin. Still, it's quite effective. I've seen her use pheromones to seduce a terrorist into blowing his own brains out. Fantastic. Use your pheromone ability, Claudia. We'll get the information we need. By hook or by crook. I thought you'd never ask. Hang, hang on. 
Hang on, as, as it turns out, that won't be necessary. All the answers you need are here in the sketchbook. You drew a comic book. In here. Read it. It was raining hard that day, and it was gray, like the world decided she didn't wish to reveal her true colors. Or her hand. And the city was following suit. That's about all that ever blankets the city these days. I used to see Spring Hill as a beacon on the hill. Now, all it is is one of those cliché cities that has fallen prey to the scum of the alleyways. And its inhabitants have followed suit. Including me. What am I? A divorced veteran detective who can only find his razor every seventh day. Buried in a sea of prescription medication on the side of my toothpaste-encrusted sink. I'm the very cliché I hate. Even though I'm on the right side of the law... I've got my opinions. Too many of them if you ask the captain. I remember that fat f Mayor Franklin waddling up to the podium. I'll never forget what he said. People of Sunny Hill, you elected me for one specific purpose. To represent you. To be your voice. Well, I've heard you loud and clear. For years, we have been buried neck deep in crime, and the prison system is in need of an overhaul, and I promised you changes. So I am here to announce the implementation of a new program. A program to reduce recidivism. A program to put the people of Sunny Hill, those who made mistakes, back on their feet and back to leading a life of significance. One that will contribute to rather than take away from the city. Inmate to Honor will select inmates to spend time with the members of law enforcement. You see, they believe the cops are the reasons they are where they are. They will shadow an officer, or detective, and experience life on the other side of the bars. This will be highly monitored, evaluated, and we will ensure the safety of you, the productive citizens of Sunny Hill. The mayor is an incompetent asshole. In one flick of his pen, that sorry excuse for a meat sack signed a death warrant for all of the SHPD. When these inmates go back to their cells and tell all their little buddies about how we do business, how are we going to do anything without everyone knowing our every step? The thought must have distracted me from reality, because when I came to... Captain Lundquist was hailing me from his office. What could he possibly want? For some reason, Lundquist likes to play the game where he slowly gets at the purpose for your presence by making you guess the actual purpose for your presence. I question my existence enough as it is. I get this feeling he's enjoying this a bit too much. Turn of the month and someone was getting another con to shatter them. I knew as much, so I said as much. Confirming that I was right, he asked me, Do you know who's getting the new one? I have a hunch, and I don't like it. It was my turn to babysit. I asked for the file, 
which he had already dropped on my desk. Of course he did. God damn it. There's a joke in here somewhere. Back to the bullpen. This building is drowning in memories. Some good, most bad. From the gray walls and desks to the dimly lit corridors and offices, Sunny Hill PD could not be any more an antithesis to the name. It seems at least once a week some tragedy jumps off the pages of fiction and into the annals of our department. I open the file. Let's see who we have here. Wickstrom Thompson, 40, from out of state, computer hacker. I rustle and shift papers, and out falls a photo of this, this behemoth. Tall, powerful looking, without actually being strong. More like a troll. Thick glasses, messy hair. He was someone I'd chat with in a bar. Maybe I did in another life. Looking up from my file, I craned my neck to see the person standing in front of me. He approaches and shakes my hand. His is sweaty and limp. Reminds me of my love life, and I hate him for it. The first thing he said to me was, You looking at my file? Funny thing about files, they don't tell the entire story. I mean, depending on your definition of story, is yours the same as mine? I don't know. You show me yours and I'll show you mine. Maybe. That's just a little joke. You can call me Wix. That's what my friends call me. I mean, if I had any. I've been out of the game for a while now. I lost connections, friends, and a grasp on technological reality. Funny how the faster things get, the more disconnected I get. I'm a little much, aren't I? I don't know how to respond to that question. Or that introduction. What do you say to someone whose ego is probably about as fragile as a floppy disk? Yeah, he's a little much. And by a little, I mean he's a fuckload of crazy. I didn't have to respond to his question anyways. He moved right on into the next thing. That's why I wanted to join the program. I have to get out of there. I know what I did was wrong. I know it was crass. I just want to get back out there for good this time. For good, huh? I asked him. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that speech, well, I wouldn't have to be here in Sunny Hill any longer, and I certainly wouldn't have to be a detective. He complimented me for participating in the program. I'd love to have him think I was Dudley Do-Right, but I was assigned this. We all have been. And I told him as such. He looked at me with dismay. I wasn't sure if he was going to deck me or thank me all over again. It was too much. I mean... It was as if he thought anyone would wish to be part of this program. His naivete had to be a ploy. There's no way someone could be that ignorant of reality. His file had a mental health evaluation in it. I couldn't read as much as I wanted, but I did get to naive but calculated, passive-aggressive, falsely intelligent, clumsy and lunky. I'm not entirely sure that last one sounds quite as objective as they wanted it to, but so far, right on the money. Because Wickstrom turned on the passive aggression. Well, I guess like it or not, here I am. I'm going to like it so, so much. I'm very excited to do this with you. You're great. I don't have the time or energy for this right now. 
and I've learned something in my years of being a detective and being married. You need to know your enemy. This was going to be the movie plot from hell, and I ain't Stallone or Connery. I told him that too. Told him that I needed to head home to my sick kid, that the ex-wife works nights. He walks away and I can finally breathe again. I don't know if he wanted me to feel badly for him, not starting today. He has a way about him that makes you edgy, like you don't know which way is up. I need a drink, and I need a story. You know, you'd think a guy like me, <laughs> a guy like me, well, you'd think a guy like me would stray away from podcasts. They're saturated with paranormal and true crime armchair detectives who think they know what's best. But I've found a few good ones over the years. Honestly, they're my only escape from this hellhole of a town, and they help the stakeouts go by quicker, too. Hi, this is Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. I'm Becky. I'm Tash. And I'm Emma. Hello. 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 We're going to talk about April Fools today and how it's not all about fun and games for everyone. It is not. It is not. And Tash, I think you've got a bit of history for us, yeah? It's history with Tash. It's not Tinder with Tash this week. It's a history with Tash. <laughs> Teach us stuff, Tash. Okay, so April Fool's Day is celebrated on the 1st of April each year. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Is it? Yes, it is. Oh, you... <laughs> you got told off already, Emma. Stop asking <laughs> silly questions. Put your hand up. <laughs> Sorry, Tash. Imagine if Tasha was a teacher. Yes, it is. Now you sit down. <laughs> it's been celebrated for several hundreds of years by lots of different cultures, although the exact origins remain a mystery. No, 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 no. I don't know what that was. That was, it, was, was it was fun. I enjoyed yeah. it. I made it up. <laughs> I'm keeping it. It's staying in. <laughs> April Fool's Day's traditions include playing hoaxes or practical jokes on other people. There are many different ideas of where and when it started. A theory that crops up in every single place that I've looked is that it started in France. Aha, uh -huh, and where are we? <laughs> you two are in France. En France. Well done. <laughs> it's good for that bit, and then it goes downhill, doesn't it? That that national anthem. <laughs> it does. It goes downhill very quickly. Starts off strong and then fizzles out very quickly. Yeah. So that means April fish. April fish. Do, do we know where the fish comes from? Because this has intrigued me. Why well, fish? And this is to symbolise. A young fish being caught easily, or a gullible person. Oh, so oh. so the old fish never get caught. That's why it's hard to catch the big fish. Yeah, because they've been caught before. You see, so they exactly. don't get caught again. We've just figured out fishing and how to help people fish better. 
Yep, so it's just to symbolise that they've been caught and that they are gullible, basically. There's nothing funnier than a paper fish stuck on your back. True. (laughs) True. Hilarious. (laughs) I spent the night reading about Wicks. I mean Wickstrom. As soon as I arrived at the station, I walked into Lundquist's office. As I sat down, Lundquist leaned forward in his chair. He predicted I was going to try and back out of this. I wanted him to know that Wickstrom is an odd duck, and that I don't trust him. I don't know if it was my kid or Wickstrom that kept me up half the night. Lundquist looked me dead in the eyes and said, I think you're overthinking it, Jim. Of course he's an odd duck. He's an hacker. Those guys all have their heads so far up their motherboard they can't actually see the light of day, talk to another person, or read a room. He smirks. I knew he was real proud of that joke, but he also has no idea what I'm going to have to deal with. Lundquist says he has a case for me, and no sooner had he mentioned the word case Wickstrom barges in like a horse loose in a hospital. He's really excited, and me? I'm immediately overcome with dread. Ooh, a case! Are we going on a case? What is the case, sir? I mean, Captain. I mean, Captain, sir. Lundquist tells him to call him Frank. A directive he immediately discards. Oh, I don't think I could do that, sir. Um, I mean, Frank. But I'll try. I really will try, Cap... Er... Frank... I lock eyes with Lundquist, and we have an entire dialogue between us within seconds. This kid has no filter, and it appears his brain follows suit. If he's willing to barge into the captain's office at the beginning of our time together, I worry about what the conclusion is going to look like. The case seems like a standard one, open and shut. Man found dead in his one-bedroom apartment, middle-aged, looked like he didn't go many places. Food cartons everywhere. Like I said, standard, making sure there wasn't any funny business. Wickstrom got a kick out of Lundquist saying funny business. On our way to the car, I listened to Wickstrom drone on about how detective vehicles should have sirens and lights, how he wants to bust down someone's door, which is a tad aggressive for someone seeking release, if you ask me. I also don't think he could kick a ball, let alone a door. It didn't matter what I said to Wickstrom. He was going to fight about that siren. He's just weird. He didn't agree, and at this point I would have agreed the sky was green if it would keep him from arguing and droning on and on. We head just south of 5th Street in Maple to an apartment complex. Wickstrom is making a siren sound under his breath and got louder as the car moved through traffic. I might just have to... Told you it'd be better with sirens. Damn it, this guy's pushing every button I have. I don't even think he knows it. It's time for the radio now. He was vehemently against the radio. He suggested we put on one of the podcasts I listened to. I mean, why not? Funny thing is, I don't think I mentioned podcast to Wickstrom. I wouldn't mention it to Lundquist, so why would I... 
We're in the realm of April Fool's Day. Yeah, I agree. Ghostwatch was a reality documentary supposedly filmed live on Halloween night in 1992, aired on BBC One. It had in fact been filmed weeks before and was not live in the slightest, but the viewers didn't know that. The programme was hosted by Michael Parkinson, a famous English presenter and journalist. They followed a family who were experiencing a very extreme haunting. The show had very much based itself off the Enfield poltergeist. Do you remember the Enfield poltergeist? I do, How yeah. How can we forget? So there was a studio set up with Mr Parkinson and a supposed parapsychologist called Dr Lynn Pascoe, who of course was played by an actress. They also had a call-in centre for the viewers to call in. Sarah Green, a famous English presenter, was to go inside the house with the family and investigate the haunting, accompanied by a couple of cameramen. Craig Charles, do you remember Craig Charles? Yeah. Yeah. So Craig Charles, also a well-known English comedian and presenter, was outside interviewing the neighbours. In England, these are really famous people. So the neighbours had awful things to say, like once they had found a pregnant black Labrador slit open and all her fetus pups were spread all around her. Oh my God. Yeah, everything was made to be as scary as possible. The family experience in the haunting was made up of mum, Pam, eldest daughter Suzanne and youngest Kimmy. Dr Lynn Pascoe had apparently been working with the family for several months and believed that they had the most haunted house in the UK. Every part of this programme was set up to look real and after having watched it, because I watched it to get to prepare this, I concur it did indeed look very real. Only now, of course, I know it's a hoax so I did notice that some of the acting was a bit cringy. <laughs> oh, when, when you look back at old things, you're like, at older programmes, you're like, Oh, yeah, so yeah. cringe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the poltergeist plaguing the family was called Mr. Pipes because he banged on pipes before throwing stuff around, scratching up Susan's face and messing around with the lights. Why do they love scratching people's faces? They love it. Oh, they like just the love it. Yeah, they love it. They love it. So multiple callers began to call in, all saying they were experiencing weird stuff whilst watching the programme. One lady even saying all her clocks had stopped and her glass table had blown up, sending her husband to hospital. And she said she couldn't get her children away from the TV as they appeared to be hypnotised by the programme. Every caller added a little bit of information surrounding the house and eventually it came to light that a baby farmer had once lived on the property and had murdered babies there. Then a family called the Sellers had rented out their room to their nephew, who was extremely deranged and was a known child abuser. He apparently claimed to be possessed by a woman and she was making him do all this bad stuff. All the while, the calls are coming in from viewers saying they can see a man dressed in ladies' clothes in the shadows all adding to the story and to the build-up of fear. So this is all planned. These are all fake calls, yeah? Yeah. The nephew supposedly ended up hanging himself in a room under the stairs, oh, which God. hilariously they called the glory hole in the show. Oh, oh God. <laughs> okay. Turns out he had at least 12 cats. I thought you were going to say he had at least 12 glory holes. <laughs> no. Greedy, greedy. 
He had at least 12 cats and that when he committed suicide, his aunt and uncle were away. So the cats had started eating his face before he was found. Towards the end of the program, all hell breaks loose and the little girl Suzanne starts reciting Little Red Riding Hood in a demonic voice. What big eyes you have, etc, etc. And there is a horrendous sound of fighting cats coming from the glory hole. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The investigators take away the boards that the family had put up and opened up the room. So they're opening up the glory hole. I can't help but snigger every time you say that. I'm like... (laughs) So upon its opening, one of the cameramen is thrown to the floor and he doesn't get up. And then the live stream ends. Back in the studio, things have also started to go wrong. A strong wind arrives from nowhere, objects start flying around and the parapsychologist realises that by putting this live on TV, they've created a nationwide seance. She looks panicked and runs off set. The presenter remains calm and we managed to get her last few images from the house. Ambulance and police have now turned up and the cameraman is taken out on a stretcher. Pam, the mum, and Kimmy, the youngest, are also taken out, leaving a cameraman, Sarah Green, and Susan in the house. It's pitch black inside, and the only images we can see are infrared. Sarah is looking everywhere for Suzanne and finds her inside the glory hole. The last images we are shown is Sarah entering the hole, and then the door slams shut and the live feed stops. Inside the studio, all the lights start blowing up and everybody leaves in a panic. Everyone except Michael Parkinson, who you can just hear say, I don't even know if the cameras are still working, but the teleprompter is. And then he begins to read a nursery rhyme that slowly fades into a demonic voice. Round and round the garden like a teddy bear. At the time, the BBC received over a million calls of complaints or praise, but generally people had been terrified by the show, not realising that none of it was real. And to be perfectly honest, there wasn't really any suggestion that it wasn't. Sadly, an 18-year-old factory worker called Martin Denham, who suffered with learning disabilities, committed suicide five days after the airing of Ghostwatch. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. Leaving behind a note that read, If there are ghosts, I will be with you always as a ghost. The family had faulty central heating and it made banging noises occasionally and so Martin had thought Mr Pipes was at his house. His parents blamed his death on Ghostwatch and the BBC. He had literally been scared to death. Oh, baby. A further two 10-year-old boys were diagnosed with PTSD after watching the broadcast. Another lady wanted compensating for a new pair of trousers as her husband had been so afraid he'd pooed himself. No. (laughs) Oh, come on, Jeremy. Control your bowels. Was it scary? 
when you watched it, Emma? It's scary if you think it's real. So the BBC had to make multiple apologies, but as far as I can see, no compensation was granted. Ghostwatch was banned for 10 years and any ideas of nominations for Emmys were forgotten. Ghostwatch remains one of the most clever and elaborate hoaxes in British television history and will always be remembered as the show that terrified the nation. I was actually one of the children that watched it when it aired in 1992, and yes, it traumatised me. But not only me, my older sister and my mum too. We were all so afraid we slept together downstairs. <laughs> it's true, we did. We all like made up a den. That's mad though, isn't it? So you may be wondering why so many children were watching. Well, the BBC had selected presenters from children's programmes, such as Blue Peter. Sarah Green was a Blue Peter presenter to lead the investigation. So that had led many parents to believe that it was family friendly and it was most definitely not. There you go, Blue Peter after dark. <laughs> Quite. Turns out Wickstrom was right. His apartment used to be just a few blocks away. Hey, Jim, detective, you good? Huh? Oh. Um, yeah, here we are. I zoned out a bit. I shook off the leftover feelings from the podcast. That story had me feeling a little off. I'm good at listening and then forgetting. Something about those three and their show got me thinking. Is this it? Wickstrom and I stood in front of the apartment building tall and imposing, casting a gloomy shadow over the surrounding area. The once vibrant paint faded, leaving a discolored surface. The bricks chipped and worn. Most of the windows have been boarded up or broken. So much for Sunny Hill, huh? We walked into a dilapidated building, held together by what seemed like a couple of screws and some duct tape. There's a musty odor that must have lingered for years. The dim lighting from a few functioning bulbs overhead makes it difficult to see much in the way of details, but from what you can make out, it leaves much to be desired. Peeling wallpaper, cracked ceilings, dirty stained carpeting. So many stains. Ah, here it is. Old tattered furniture clutters the living room. The armchair in the corner is missing a leg while the couch has ripped cushions. An old radio sits on the coffee table, too ecstatic. I'd say I live better than this, but I don't think I'm home long enough to say I live anywhere. The world has gone mad, and those of us who are holding on are only holding on by our fingernails. We're one moment away from just letting go. We can hold on, but even then, all we probably need is just a little push. <laughs> Wickstrom follows behind me like a lost puppy. You're never ready for your first murder scene. I almost feel bad for him. Almost. Despite the rancid condition of the entire house, I don't think that's what got him murdered, but there he is, on the floor, in front of his computer, at the desk beside the coffee table against the wall in the living room. I don't know what Lundquist thought he was sending us to, but this is no more a murder, any more than Wickstrom's talent of being socially adept. This is a suicide. Knife by his dominant hand, deep cut to the neck, no signs of forced break-in, and no reports of noise coming from the apartment. 
Man, I remember when I had that PC, like 20 years ago. <laughs> now wasn't the time to piss me off, Wickstrom. You don't joke with the dead. But something about his comment makes me take a closer look at his computer. I tell Wickstrom not to touch anything as he walks into the kitchen, while I look closer at the glaring screen. The cursor sat there, blinking rhythmically, pumping a drip sound into my mind. I could hear the electricity humming. I could almost track it. To... the radio? The radio was old. The static was penetrating my eyes and reverberating around in my sockets. It was working alongside the images brought up on the screen. Before I have to turn away, I see a folder on the screen titled... Wix. Then things went dark. My case today is about a prank gone wrong. Or is it? I do apologize in advance for the way that I'm going to butcher the place names and the pronunciation of people's names in this story. We always generally butcher words anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, it's not done on purpose or with any malice. It's just, I just can't read. Why am I doing a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> Lin Sahao and Wang Yang were both graduate students in the medical school at Fudan University in China. They both shared a room along with another roommate. But as many of us know, sharing our personal space with other people can be stressful and downright annoying at times. I'd imagine that if I had a roommate... I think my biggest problem that we could have together was like food stealing. I think <laughs> stealing of my food, that would be the biggest issue. Like, don't touch my food. I wouldn't like mind cooking for everyone in the apartment, but if I have special, special Becky chocolate or leftover takeaway, no one's got to be touching that. <laughs> right, so Lynn didn't like his roommate, but like over trivial daily matters, like trivial problems from day to day of living with other people. Wang often commented on Lin. He like often described him as stingy and once criticized their other roommate by comparing his bad behavior to Lin's. So saying, oh, you're such a Lin, which really made Lin angry. Fair enough. Yeah, but it's like, it's, but instead of like asking to be transferred to a different apartment or something like that, Lin wanted to get his own back. And instead of laying in bed at night, coming up with epic comebacks to what he should have said in past arguments to Wang and everything like that, like the rest of us introverts. Yeah, absolute normal people. That's what we do. Yeah, absolutely. For ages, oh, I should have said that. Oh, that would have been so cool. After crying. Yeah, after crying. And then maybe even making up some new arguments <laughs> that could happen <laughs> and the ways that you could come back to that. So Lynn decided to take things further. Pause for dramatic effect. Ba, ba, ba. Was that good? Yeah, it was very good. In the afternoon of March 31st, 2011, Lynn borrowed the lab key from another person and accessed the 204 Medical Imaging Laboratory. It's never good news, that is. Lynn took out a bottle of MDMA and syringes and he put everything and hid it in like this little medical waste bag and took it out of the room. So he took a load of very suspicious stuff out of this lab that he shouldn't have taken out. And with the next day being April Fool's Day, it was the perfect time to get his roommate back. 
for slightly throwing a shady comment at him earlier in the day. So this just seems really, um, what's the word, like out of proportion. <laughs> bit dramatic. He's really blown it out of the water with this one. Lynn's plan was to spike the water dispenser in their dorm room, which is mainly used by Wang. So Lin would later say that he only intended to cause his roommate discomfort after Huang announced his own plans to trick someone on April Fool's Day. And because he thought that Huang was so self-righteous, he deserved to be put in his place. So after drinking the water, Huang became ill on the 1st of April. And on the morning of the 2nd of April, Huang was in so much pain in his stomach and around his liver that he asked Lin to perform an ultrasound just to check to see what was going on. So Lin did so and said, mate, there's nothing wrong with your liver. Everything's fine, man up. But unfortunately, Huang's condition got worse and worse, and he was hospitalised on the afternoon of the 2nd of April. He was later transferred to the intensive care centre the next day with a fever, liver failure, and plunging blood platelets. So Huang's condition remained undiagnosed until April 8th, when Lin's other roommate, who was not resident at the dorm at the time, he wasn't there that week, he remembered that Lin had written articles about NDMA. So he went to the police with this information, and the police would look into Lin. And they found that, yeah, Lin had published several articles containing descriptions of experiments with NDMA in national academic journals, including measuring lethal volumes in mice. They would later found that Lin put at least 30 grams of the chemical in the water dispenser around 5.50pm on the 31st of March. And this is more than 10 times the fatal dose for an adult man. What is wrong with him? Yeah. Lin would later go on to saying that he didn't, you know, that he didn't mean to kill his friend, that he was just meant to make him ill. But police would go on to him and say, look, you published papers about this drug. You know exactly what you were doing. And you could have killed other people. Anyone could have gone and, you know, anyone that, if you had anyone over, they could have drank out of the water fountain and they could have also died. Because um, after the 8th of April, that's when, unfortunately, Wang would succumb to NDMA poisoning. He died from liver failure, basically. God. Lin would be charged with the murder of his friend. Huang's father was at all the court hearings, everything about the case, and he told the press, told anyone that had listened, that he wanted Lin's life. He wanted a life for a life. He wanted to push for the death penalty. But eventually, on the 10th of December 2015, Lin received notification from the court that the death penalty verdict had been approved. And he was executed the next day on December 11th, 2015. The trial itself lasted uh, nearly three years. But once everything was approved for the death penalty, he was put to death. They were like, we're not letting him get away with it again, are they? No. And it, where they live, it is still a country where the death penalty is still a thing. It's still uh, something that can, uh, you can be sentenced to in China as of at the minute today. So yeah, it's just a... Uh, a sad, sad thing. So when, yeah, when I picked this case, I really thought... It was a prank gone wrong. I really thought, yeah, either it was a prank gone wrong or I wonder if there was this big story behind it that Lynn was bullied or anything like that. But 
No, unfortunately, Lynn decided to end his roommate's life over the general annoying things that come with having to share a living space with another human being. It's very dramatic. So, for no reason. Yeah, yeah. A, bit, a bit OTT. Yes. Yeah. I mean, move dorms. Yeah. yeah. April Fool's isn't always fun. Jim? Detective? Jim? Jim? Jim, hey. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Flashing before my eyes was the folder on the computer. Wicks wasn't benevolent. He wasn't ignorant. Wicks was a murderer. Wicks led the way out. I had a sinking feeling in my stomach and it wasn't because I hadn't eaten. I didn't trust that guy. I didn't want to be within 10 blocks of him, let alone in my car with him. What the fuck happened, Jim? What do you mean? How did I get back to the SHPD? I turned and caught my appearance in the window. I was covered in... in blood. Who did this? What happened? I I don't know. They began cuffing me. Wix, it had to be fucking Wix. He killed that guy in that apartment you sent me to. This must be from him and what he did. What apartment, Jim? Who's... Wicks? Look, you've been going on about the rehabilitation program. I didn't think you would take these measures. It's all hazy. There's an unidentified body in the passenger seat of your car, Jim. They're sitting there with a butcher knife in their forehead. Oh, God. And over 50 stab wounds. On the hood of your car, drawn in blood is Wix was here. (laughs) All right, Jim, that's enough. Blackness enveloped me again. Wix would be proud. Well, that was a waste of time. I've never seen anything like it. First a comic book, which told us nothing. He was just toying with us. Wanted his two superhero crushes to read his fanfiction. And then he was able to withstand your pheromone interrogation. It was so strong. I would have given you my banking password if you'd asked. Aren't you glad I didn't compel you to do my bidding? (laughs) His willpower is inhumane. When this is over, we need to study him. Dissect him, perhaps. See what makes him tick. What's our next play? We don't have a lot of time, Omega says. The Graf has been making some moves. Time to call up the science pukes. Are we going to hook him up to the knock? Natürlich! This device is the Krieger Neural Pathways module for the observation of the coded knowledge. We call it the knock. Just relax. This gentleman in the lab code will place these sensors on your temples and will be able to listen in on any secret you have buried in your head. Any secret at all, no matter how deep down it may be. Now, this won't hurt a bit. Well, I wouldn't mind if it hurt him a little. Ha! Happy hunting, ladies! (laughs) Alright, switch it on.
Switch it off. Switch it off. Switch it off. Hello and welcome to Reverie True Crime. I'm your host, Paige. Have you ever said the phrase, You scared me to death. We sometimes say this when we are exceedingly afraid, but is it possible to truly be scared to death? Let's say, for example, a jump scare in a movie makes your butt come out of your seat, your heart rate skyrockets, your anxiety is through the roof, and for a moment, it takes your breath away. Can something like that actually kill you? The answer to this is yes. A very strong emotion of any kind can set off the adrenaline in your body in such a large amount that it can, in fact, kill you. It is rare, but this can happen to anyone, especially if you have a pre-existing heart condition you are at a greater risk of dying due to being frightened, being way too excited, laughing heartily, playing a sport, having sex, being very emotional and crying uncontrollably, or being furious. Any powerful emotion can trigger deadly amounts of adrenaline. Today, however, we are specifically focusing on the sensation of fear. When people die from being scared to death, their autonomic nervous system triggers a flight-or-fight response, which disseminates the adrenaline in such whopping doses that this could be toxic to the heart, liver, kidneys, and lungs. This is our body's way of physically reacting to what it recognizes to be a threat to our lives that we need to fight off and react fast or run away from it quickly to survive. It causes sweat to pour out of our bodies, increases our blood glucose levels, heightens anxiety, and our heart rate soars. Scientists say that sudden death in this manner is usually a case of damage to the heart due to the heart being the only organ that, when affected, could cause you to instantly kick the bucket. This is exactly what happened to a young woman in 1896. John Ahrens and his wife resided on the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee. John was a farmer who harvested a master plan to fool his wife on April Fool's Day. They'd only been married a few months, and he enjoyed being playful. John was so in love with his wife, and she deeply loved him the same. He idolized his fairly new bride with a passion. She meant everything to him. Not only did he love her, but so did everyone in the community who knew her. 
On April 1st, 1896, John's beautiful wife was inside of their home while John was getting himself disguised in a white mask. This was going to be the perfect little wisecrack to scare his wife just a smidge. They would have a good laugh and go on about their day. Unfortunately, that's not how this mischievous antic would play out. John slipped into clothes that would make him appear as if he were a vagrant, a traveling passerby, and a white mask which was fastened onto his face. He went to their front door and thumped it with his fist a few times. John's wife opened the door and was in complete shock when this scary masked man demanded that she make him dinner. The poor young woman collapsed onto the floor. The love of his life died suddenly right before his eyes. The emotional and mental impact this had on John almost drove him mad. He was stricken horribly with grief, remorse, guilt, and he wanted to take his own life. What happened to John Aaron's? Sadly, nobody seems to know. I searched newspapers and articles because I want to know what happened to John. I would like to think that he was able to work through the grief and survive it. Alas, we will never know. Dear friends, that's where the story ends. So in closing, yes, you can be scared to death. On this April Fool's Day, keep in mind, there is a chance that if you play a prank on someone, they could indeed suddenly perish right in front of you. Jokes can kill. Thank you for listening to this episode. See you all next week. Same time, same place. Jokes. Get all of that, Captain. <laughs> Listen really closely. The answers are all right here. <laughs>Welcome to Mission Spooky. I'm your fantastic host, JC. With me today, as per usual, the queen of everything herself, Kiki, and our local cryptid enthusiast, who is incredibly tired today, Cord. How you guys doing? I'm so sleepy. I'm so sleepy. <laughs> I love when you do that voice. It is a good voice. It's my favorite. Grandpa needs his nap time. <laughs> Please, I just want to go to bed. <laughs> well, you can't. You can't, Cord, because this is a very special episode. Not yet.
that we're pleased to be a part of. It is an absolute honor to be in this group of indie podcasters that you folks are listening to right now. I'm not sure of the order in which we are going to appear, so I'm not going to name any names. But I'm sure if you've listened up till now, you know that everyone involved is pretty darn cool. Some of you may be new listeners, so JC... Yeah. He's our paranormal investigator. Yes, I am a paranormal investigator. Cord is our resident cryptid enthusiast. Big ups to Trunko. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> You're also uh, a what now? A super cool guy. Oh, a pro wrestler. I'm a wrestler. <laughs> I was like, you know, the big one. You are tired. I'm at almost 22 hours up right now oh right fantastic you're gonna love this subject then and i'm kiki i've been involved in the paranormal since i was born on halloween and i am a physical anthropologist and archaeologist with a specialization in classical studies which is why i chose today's topic of april fools nerd excuse me as i go get a pillow and take a nap we're gonna talk about roman emperors who were also pranksters Oh, heck yeah. So not only were some of these dudes vicious and cruel, but they also like to play tricks on people. Well, that's the key. If you're going to commit mass murder and torture people, you got to have a bit of a humor about it. You know, Rome is home to the Festival of Hilaria, which is celebrated on March 25th. (laughs) During this festival, people would play practical jokes on each other and wear masks to disguise themselves because, of course, you don't want to be known while you're doing the things this is like a tame version of the purge basically celebrating the arrival of spring and the renewal of life our april fool's day kind of uh, mirrors that very much one could say that practical jokes in ancient rome were meant to be fun there were a few emperors who did not get the memo that it was supposed to be fun and while i'd love to tell you that all of these stories end well This is Mission Spooky, which means they don't. So before we get to the clown prince of ancient practical jokes, there are a few who will come before him that most folks are going to remember as very terrible people. For example, if I say the name Caligula, what comes to mind? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Debauchery. What Cord said. (laughs) yeah pretty much pretty much yeah just that noise so for those of you who aren't up on your roman history caligula was known for his cruelty sexual deviance and megalomaniacal behavior he ordered the execution of many people including members of his own family and he proclaimed himself a god but he also had a mischievous streak he once ordered his soldiers to collect seashells from the shore and bring them back to Rome, claiming that they were the spoils of a successful military campaign against the ocean. Technically, maybe. If he sent soldiers there and the ocean didn't, who won? However, reading between the lines, it is more likely that his men were about to mutiny. (laughs) So he gave them a beach vacation? Well, hold up, because he may have asked them to sail out against Britain. This seashell antic is taking place on the shores of northern France. So rather than have them mutiny, he simply punished them for possibly being cowards by making them gather the sarcastic spoils of war, instead humiliating them. I like this theory. Freaking got him, yo. Yeah, I like this theory. It is then a practical joke on the men. After Caligula, we have another really famous dude. If I say Nero. 
I had a friend in uh, school named Nero. He was a good dude. So he's infamous as being a tyrannical ruler and his alleged role in the Great Fire of Rome. I'll also get to that in a minute, too. He's also known for his extravagant lifestyle and erratic behavior. So while there are conflicting reports of the, quote, Nero fiddling while Rome burned, I'd like to remind everyone that the fiddle was not invented yet at the time when Rome burned. And that Nero was probably not even in the city at the time that the blaze started. So there's very little evidence to support that he actually like set it on fire because he didn't like the architecture. But what has been consistently written about Nero is that he loved the theater. He loved putting on costumes nearly every day. This leads to a practical joke that he's going to play over and over and over again. And I'm surprised that people just didn't after a while be like, oh, here he is again. He would dress up like a slave and sneak into the rooms of his courtiers and scare them in the middle of the night. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, isn't really that funny. Because you got a slave bursting in your room and possibly acting like he's going to kill you or do other terrible things to you. And then it's just your boss. <laughs> oh, what a good fun day at the workplace, you know? Oh. Yeah, it's just your boss being, being a weirdo. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny, Emperor. <laughs> Uh, he's just trying me. to improve corporate i mean uh imperial uh morale yes morale yeah <laughs> mind you courtiers not courtesans so courtiers th these are his advisors and assistants to the family these are not like ladies that he's in although possibly ladies is interested in. who knows right think of it mostly like yeah it's the boss like your boss is like coming in and messing with you absolutely was he the original michael scott <laughs> let me get to Elagabulus. I'm sorry, who? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need you to repeat that name. Elagabulus. Was he also fabulous? He might have been. I'm going to call him Gabby. I too was going to call him Gabby. This poor kid. Oh boy, he was a kid. I think he was uh, 14 when he's named Emperor. And that's, oh. I, some would say that's too young. Some would also say that that's probably why he was the best practical joker. Ooh, got him. Probably yeah. true. That is true. I've watched enough YouTube and TikTok videos to know that teenagers, best practical jokers, because they're very mean. Oh, wait, wait. Elagabalus. He's 14 when he gets made emperor. This is all happening in 218. Like AM or PM? <laughs> I'm done. I'm leaving. <laughs> For any new listeners, trust me. I'm as disappointed in myself as you're disappointed in me. If you think those jokes are bad, just listen to the other 93 episodes that are available. <laughs> so Gabby, he has a pretty controversial personal life as well. At 14, by the time he is no longer emperor, he'll have married five times. Can't see. Five times. And he unfortunately is not emperor for a very long time. We're talking like five years tops. He also preferred dressing in women's clothing and engaging in a lot of same-sex relationships. Now, sometimes these things are written as being scandalous, but I think a lot of people forget that during Roman times, homosexuality was like not a big deal. The only time that it really became a big deal is because he's supposed to be an emperor. He's supposed to be acting a certain way. Right. All of these things are just over the top being married to a different person every year but also involved in same-sex relationships that everybody knows about but also all the other eccentric behavior that goes with it such as prostituting himself inside the imperial palace <laughs> 
and possibly encouraging the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> encouraging it? And that's not listed as one of the practical jokes. <laughs> no. I don't want to end on the sad note. So I'll just cut right to the chase. He is going to be overthrown by his own Praetorian guard, and he's going to be replaced with his cousin Severus Alexander. I'd like to think that they got together after the fifth wedding and they're like, we can't keep buying him new wedding gifts. This is a scam. Everything else we don't care about. We don't get paid <laughs> enough to continue affording these gifts. When I say that his Praetorian guard overthrew him, what do you think that means? Oh, they murdered him. <laughs> yes. Possibly only 19 years old. And he had been married five times. They didn't just murder him, though. Oh God! They murdered his mother. Well, no witnesses. That's why I said you know? I don't want to. Oh, I don't want to end on that note. You don't want that to be the last note. No. So let's talk about the practical jokes, though. <laughs> yeah, the fun part. This kid was great when he was alive. He really liked exotic animals. He kept a menagerie of them in the palace, and this is according to Cassius Dio. He may have all these animals, but uh, they're not vicious. They're, they've been housebroken, so to speak. So it'd be like nothing to have like a lion, you know, roaming around or cheetah, whatever. I don't, you know what housebroken means? No. Lions and cheetahs don't get housebroken. Cats don't get housebroken. <laughs> All right, continue on with your story, Kiki. Ah, uh, yes, because see, that's not the practical joke part. That's just the setup. Let's say you're an out-of-towner. It's the first time you've ever been in the palace. You don't know anything. You're a mark for Gabby because you don't know anything about the palace and you don't know him. Mm -hmm. And he is going to get you very drunk. So drunk that you can't leave. Like, you can't even walk anymore. You pass out. And when you wake up in the morning, you're laying on this beautiful, lavish pillow on the floor and next to you is a lion that as far as you're concerned is gonna eat your face off that is kind of intimidating yeah because you don't know but gabby knows and he's waiting in the wings he's waiting in the shadows he is <laughs> waiting for all you idiots to wake up from your stupor and watch as you clamor and scream for your lives because you assume that these very much terrible animals that you've heard about are going to eat you alive he also really loved perfume a lot which is fine except that apparently he also liked to throw it on his guests and his servants man you stink it's kind of like glitter bombing but not you know like you're just walking minding your own business doing your stuff and all of a sudden he's like wah i was kind of picturing like dipping his fingers in it and just kind of flicking just yeah <laughs> right Again, I feel like this is all like little tiny micro aggressions leading up to because also he'd perfume like every piece of furniture. So you're an advisor or you're a senator and you're just like, oh, Jesus, why? Look, they've been praying to Jesus at this point. They're like, Jesus, why? <laughs> why in Zeus's name? <laughs> this place. Jesus, why in Zeus's name? <laughs> <laughs> Look what you've made me do. Boy. I've invoked the Christian God. What is going on? I said about his like sexual exploits. At one point, he asks his personal doctors to create a potion that will allow him to change his gender so that he can experience sex as a woman. Interesting. Not a practical joke, but worth mentioning that people will act like certain things are only happening today. In fact, they happened a very long time ago and also to 16 year olds. So, yeah, I don't know. It's almost like <laughs> the 
knows anything about history. And that's why I'm here, guys. I'm here to tell you that homosexuality <laughs> has been around since at least 222. Got him. Once again, AM or PM? PM. That's it. We're driving to your house, JC. Here's the best thing. Here's the thing that Gabby is going to go down in history for. Recently, there was a commercial in which a very famous rock star said that the whoopee cushion was invented by a Canadian named Joseph E. Mitchell in the 20th century. And I'm here to tell y'all that it was not. <gasps> well, I think he meant like the modern whoopee cushion, but continue on. Yes, the rubber whoopee cushion was created by the Canadian, but the OG, which would have consisted of a bladder of like a pig or a cow or horse, for example, that was invented by Gabby. The original fart. He made sure to put these air inflated things under the little pillow of the Roman senators and elitists that he hated the most so that at dinner time it would sound like they farted <laughs> and I'm so if sad. If I were him I would then crucify them for farting in front of me the emperor. Alright Caligula uh. Thus ends the wonderful prankster life of Ella Gabalus. Sick. Yeah. I need to know which one of these guys coined the phrase, it's just a prank, bro. Well, it had to have been Gabby, right? Like, as his Praetorian guards come in to stab him, he's like, dude, it's, it's just, just a, a prank, prank bro. <laughs> At that point, they had zero chill. That was the problem with Rome. And I get, you just had Caracalla. Just had him, like, two years before. And now you gotta deal with this little shit? Hey, now. Now, I'm not saying they should have murdered him, but... This is the thing that happens, as everyone knows. You should know your Roman history. This is what happens. There's a lot Sometimes, of as a prankster, murder. you gotta learn to read the room, too. You know, maybe don't prank so much in front of guys who have big old swords. I feel bad for the kid, because if he'd had a better mentor that was like... Better list of pranks. Stop living like you're gonna die tomorrow, because you will. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the wise words of Kiki that we need. We need everyone to know. Stop living like it's like <laughs> you're going to die tomorrow because you're going to die tomorrow. If you're an emperor in Rome during this time period, yes. I'm sure that he saw everyone else getting away with literal murder and was like, I'm just going to do this funny shit. And um, they weren't having it. I don't want to say a comeuppance, but I do think that it's darkly comical that um, in about 10 years, they're going to get a dude that takes over called Maximinus Thrax, which is a fantastic name. He deliberately goes after the wealthy and the senators and persecutes the heck out of them. Ooh. I feel like, yeah, you could have just had the kid who made fun of you and made you do fart sounds when you sat down instead of the dude who comes in 10 years later and actually kills you. Yeah, don't seem so bad now making fart noises, huh? Right. You know, everyone has their limits. Thanks for listening to this special episode brought to you by Rogue Transmissions. We are Mission Spooky. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, etc., etc. We also do some D&D. We have our own Chord versus Cryptid TTRPG episodes. We've got four of those and two more on the way. Kiki, I am also in Tales of Thern as a character. Another TTRPG only podcast. Anyone can join our regular Discord community. You can find that in any of our socials in our link tree in the bio. Don't forget, if you like us, give us a follow over on iTunes, Podchaser, Good Pods. Actually, Spotify now has that ability. And as we always say... Stay spooky and don't die. But if you do, contact us. 
beats every goddamn thing I've ever seen. We didn't get anything from The Knock. Nothing except podcasts. Any normal man would crack after three minutes. He's programmed those podcasts into his brain as a defense mechanism to prevent someone from extracting information from him. How did you do it? The same way the graph is able to change his face. Do you want to know how he does it? Look at him, Jet. My god. It's him. He... Changing? Hutter is the graph. I'm disappointed, Captain Demeter. It's obvious you didn't read my comic to the end. If you did, you'd see that the graph changes his face by warping reality. He simply draws the world as he wishes it to be. Look, that last page of the comic. It depicts everything that just happened right up to this moment. You still don't get the joke. I didn't predict anything. I created it. I am the author of this reality. That's it, Jet. We've been such fools. That's why we've been acting like cruel little fascists throughout this story. Listen, you would never torture someone for information. You're kind and noble. That's why I'm in love with you. And I would never use my powers to drive someone to suicide. We haven't been acting like heroes at all. And it's all because this reality has been created by a madman. But why? Why would you do this? Why does anyone do anything? <laughs> I did it for the lols. Uh, my body. Warping. Ripping. My mind. My... Consciousness is slipping into undefined space, into oblivion, into oblivion, into oblivion. been listening to Rogue Transmissions, April Fools. Rogue Transmissions is produced, edited, and directed by J.T. Hosek and Edward October. City on the Edge of Oblivion was presented by Octoberpod from a radio play written by John Iger. Captain Demeter, Jet Hauser, and Lady Skunkgate character designs by Nick Calavera. General Hardburns, Dr. Scorpion, created by Edward October Jr., and appear via special arrangement with Bro Comics. Starring Johanna, co-host of Fresh Hell Podcast, Tara Voschel, The Spooky Sleuth, and co-host of Three Spook Girls, and J.T. Hosack, Brew Crime, Crime Trials, and Active Shooter Podcasts, with special guest Paige Elmore, host of Reverie True Crime. Watch OctoberPod home video on YouTube. Listen to OctoberPod AM wherever you get podcasts, or find OctoberPod on the World Wide Web at OctoberPodVHS.com. The Origins of April Fool's Day was presented by Freaky AF, narrated by Sarai. You can find Freaky AF on Twitter and Instagram at FreakyAFPod. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Brew Crime presents There's a Joke in There Somewhere, written and performed by JT Hosack. Listen to JT with co-host Mike on Brew Crime, wherever you get podcasts. Find JT on Twitter and Instagram at 
JT Brews Crime. Or follow Brew Crime on Twitter and Instagram at Brew Crime. I think we figured out fishing was presented by Spine Chillers and Serial Killers, hosted by Emma, Becky, and Tash. Find them on Twitter at SCSK underscore podcast and Instagram at SCSK underscore podcast underscore. Listen on your favorite podcast apps. Scared to Death was presented by Reverie True Crime, narrated by Paige Elmore. Listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you get podcasts. Find Paige on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod. That's R-E-V-E-R-I-E Crime Pod. And on Instagram at Reverie True Crime. The Clown Prince of Rome was presented by Mission Spooky. Hosted by Cord, JC, and Kiki. Find Mission Spooky on Twitter and Instagram at Mission Spooky. Listen wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoyed Rogue Transmissions, we'd be deeply gratified if you followed all of these fine programs. And tell your friends about all the wondrous things you heard. The man who spoke to you was Mr. Edward October. <laughs>